time, Oscar-winning costume designer Colleen Atwood joins us to talk about Hannibal Lecter, her 11th collaboration with director Tim Burton, designing for the Harry Potter canon, and much more. This is Pop Culture Confidential. Hi, I'm Christina Yerling-Biro. Welcome back to Pop Culture Confidential. So legendary costume designer Colleen Atwood has been very busy just this past year or so. First there was Huntsman, Winter's War, and then Alice through the Looking Glass. Now her most recent collaboration with director Tim Burton, Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children, was just nominated for a Costume Guild Award. And last week she was Oscar nominated for her costumes in the Harry Potter prequel, Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. And this is how it seems to have been for Colleen Atwood, full speed ahead. She became a mother at age 18 and worked her way from a French fry factory to designing some of the most iconic costumes in film, in all genres, drama, fantasy, and modern day. From Hannibal Lecter's mask in Silence of the Lambs to Edward Scissorhands, she worked on Planet of the Apes in Chicago and Memoirs of a Geisha and the Tourist with Angelina Jolie. Her costumes are always rich in detail and a very deep study of character. It may not even be obvious to us, the viewer, but always adding a new layer to her films. Her latest film with Tim Burton, their 11th together, Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children, travels back in time to Wales during World War II, to an orphanage full of peculiar children with their own supernatural powers. It's run by the awesome Miss Peregrine, played by Ava Green, who can transform into a bird. Because our abilities don't fit in the outside world, we live in places like this, where no one can find us. Jake, come and play! (laughs) I knew you were one of us when you were born. It's time for you to learn what you can do. I'm just ordinary. No, you're not. You were born to protect us. Promise me one thing. Look after them, Jake. I promise. There's a new world coming. She's dressed in a stunning blue suit with a 1940s silhouette with bird-like elements. And Atwood has infused each of the children's custom-made costumes with elements of their own particular power. While you're listening to this, go check out popcultureconfidential.com. There's a lot of sketches from the work we're talking about during the interview. I was very honored to talk to this real legend of Hollywood filmmaking. We spoke right ahead of the announcement of this year's Oscar nominations, and just a few hours later, she had been nominated for her work with Fantastic Beasts. Miss Colleen Atwood, thank you so much for being here. You're welcome. Um, we're talking right before the Oscar nominations, but I feel pretty confident when I say congratulations on your nomination. <laughs> oh, don't jinx it. <laughs> okay, I, I won't. I won't, but I'm going to be good. You have been one of a working designer that has done everything from fantasy to normal costumes. Um, what do you find the most interesting looking back? I think I prefer um, the idea of a film that's like period or fantasy that's set in a time period that you can elaborate on a bit. Um, I think modern day is a huge challenge for designers, but the more 
because I really like to construct costumes and, and, and make them mm-hmm. as opposed to shop them that I prefer that kind of show to sort of a shop to modern day show. Right, right. But uh, if I can go back and talk to you about one of the movies that was really important to me sort of when I was studying film, um, and that's Silence of the Lambs, because there's a line in that movie where Hannibal says something like, paraphrasing, you know what you look like to me with your good bag and your cheap shoes. You look like a rube, a well-scrubbed rube with a little taste um was that in the script and and did you think about that and the good bag and the shoes um yeah um in that particular script it was a very strong kind of you know because it was in the dialogue and in the description you know that this character had of her we de- we definitely jonathan Deme and jody and i all kind of discussed you know what that would mean that she you know she just had like when you go to a department store and you have taste mm-hmm. and no money, you can look really good. But if you have you can go to the department store with a lot of money and no taste and you can look really bad. Right. Um, so, you know, she was somebody who'd, who'd always had to, you know, who, who made good choices in what she wore. And, you know, even though it was cheap, it still looked like more than it was. So it was a real stab at her kind of, ability to do that by busting her on the fact that she wasn't, you know, really like a DC preppy that had money, which she could sell herself as in her work. So that's kind of where that's kind of, you know, that was sort of the back thought on, on that particular line. A lot of times in scripts, you get like descriptions of costumes, which are really ridiculous. It's just some (laughs) writer's fantasy about it. And you sort of ask the director, do you really think it'd be that? And he's like, no. So, you know, it just depends on the how it's how it's rolling with the story and with the, you know, with the director. And, you know, in that case, it was a really good line and a really good description of more than the, sh- the clothes. It's a description of the person. And what about the mask itself, the legendary Hannibal Lecter mask? Was that you yeah. on it? It was. It was. It was so funny. We made this mask and originally the mask was going to be... Um, I did it. I have like the worst drawing of it. It's just like a line drawing. It's so like quick. And I like made this mask Mm -hmm. and, um, and it was originally going to be painted. We didn't know what color we're thinking, white, black, you know, kind of looked like they repurposed a hockey mask and they came back from the maker just to fit. And it was, um, it was raw fiberglass, which kind of looked like an old piece of leather, like skin. It was so creepy. And we went, Oh my God, what a good, I'm glad it came back that way because it was so much better than what we were thinking. And that's how it ended up, you know, being what it was. Yeah. And that's what's so perfect about it. It really fits with his, with the whole Hannibal Lecter. Um, and it really is one of those yeah, like, yeah. iconic masks you never yeah. forget. <laughs> you know, what's amazing is there's only one of those out there. Oh, really? Who has it? The real one. Um, I think one of the producers had it at the end, but I don't know where it is now. I have no idea, but, but we only, you know, it was like those days, your budget was small. You were doing stuff, you know, on a shoestring. And so you didn't make like 10 of everything, like the action movies and stuff today. There was only one of them, which when you think about 
pretty scary if something had happened to it. <laughs> right, right, right. That would have been horrible. Um, yeah. I'd like to go back even a bit further, if that's okay, because I find your story so inspiring. You, you, had, uh, you were a very young mother, I think 17 or 18 years old, and you supported your family. Yeah, 18. Um, you worked in a French fry factory, is that right? I did when my daughter was a baby, yes. And how did you end up going from supporting your family there and, and to costumes? It's a long, it was a long journey. But, you know, I mean, I didn't really start doing costumes until my daughter was 16 years old. Before that, I, I'd worked in retail a lot and, and kind of done a kind of private shopping kind of client, I guess, kind of like early day stylist career in, in Seattle. And I was really tired of it. My daughter was grown up and I, I was on my own, um, you know, and I had always loved movies and I started examining the possibility of working on film. So I kind of moved to New York cold with no contacts or anything Wow. Um, and got odd jobs and met someone on the street by chance, a friend of mine from Seattle whose parents were production designers. And I got a job working for her mother, who was Patricia von Brandenstein, who's a very renowned production designer from New York, on um, ragtime making set dressing for the sets. Like we just kind of, her daughter and I worked together and we made hats and all kinds of trims and things for, for the wagons in the, on the Lower East Side. And then one job just kind of led to another. So without Patricia's belief and support, I really, you know, probably wouldn't have had the shot that I had, but I just got lucky, you know, and then worked really hard. <laughs> but the fact the fact that you had a child young and you worked so hard and you went through all these sort of different jobs to get what you were dreaming of, does that help you as a designer and, and looking at women specifically, maybe? Well, I've known a lot of, you know, I came into it with a lot of life experience, which, you know, is in a strange way not equal to, but somewhat as interesting as a degree from an art school or design school. I'd gone to art school, but just for two years, you know, I'd studied a lot of different things and I'd worked in out there in the world doing a lot of different jobs. So I knew what a lot of people were like, um, because I was old for my years, you know, I'd had old, older experience for the year, for the time that, you know, that I'd been, an adult mm -hmm, mm -hmm. when I started, which helped me maybe to be less seduced by people that were maybe not the best role models, like all kinds of things. It just kept me real, I think, in a way that really helped my career. Right. And visually, it helped me because I worked with waitresses. I'd worked with people in factories. I'd worked, I grew up on a farm. You know, I knew a lot of different people and how they looked and how they thought researching you I had a really hard time wrapping my head around how much you must have worked this past year or so you have three movies out pretty much how did how did you make this work well they weren't all happening at the same time you know the post-production period on different films is, is you know some very protracted and others is very quick so this year like the actual movies that came out this year were through the looking glass the huntsman peregrine and fantastic beast but that covers like a two and a half year period in my design life I wasn't doing all of them in the same year of course but you've been very busy <laughs> yes I have I haven't had a break really 
Now, Miss Peregrine is your 11th collaboration with the great Tim Burton. After so many projects together, how does your communication work today? Are you, are you totally in sync? Pretty much. I mean, we have a good, you know, we have a good uh, shorthand. I know how to prepare questions for Tim in a way that works for him so I can get through a lot of material quickly with him. And, um, and he, he's, um, you know, he sort of lets me do my thing and then I show it to him and get his notes and then go back in and, and keep moving forward with the design. So it's a fairly, uh, at this point, but kind of honestly has always been a very kind of amiable work, uh, relationship. Right, right. Can you describe when you say that you sort of prepare, you know what questions to prepare for him? Can can you give an example of what you mean by that? Well, I just like present him not so much questions, but visual images that go with the question. So it's not a, a lot of talking, it's more showing. Mm. And because he's an artist and because he's a visual person, it's a, it's a, it's a, a more kind of conducive way to communicate with, with, with that particular director. Could you talk a little bit about the inspiration for this movie in particular, design-wise? Well, it was, you know, it's set in a time period, so the background sort of set against the, the you know, English bombing. So I did research of the children that were displaced during the war. A lot of people sent their kids to the countryside to avoid, because London was so dangerous at, at, you know, for quite a few years for, for people. Um, and then I took, you know, the reference of the photographs from the book and just sort of got the feeling and the mood of it and then um, sort of took it from there. One of the characters is actually invisible with some design elements in it. How, how did you think about design around that one? Well, we knew he was going to be invisible, but we wanted to see him in the movie. So when he was invisible, he didn't have any clothes on, which was very easy. Right, of but course. But then when he was uh, when he was visible, we we wanted him to feel like one of the kids. So one thing that kind of looked better, we figured out, was to give him a hat because then it defined that he had a head mm. rather than just a body that was floating around with with a suit on and no kind of connection. Um, and then he was sort of this kind of mischievous, kind of like a little rascal. So I sort of gave him that style of, of clothing. Like a kid's uh, play clothing type of thing. Yeah. Do you know who, what Little Rascals was an American kind of thing? Of course, the, yeah. Kind of, you know, them like bad kind of naughty boys. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, and then you, of course, have the absolutely spectacular Miss Peregrine's dress herself. Um, wh how, what kind of materials are that? What did you work with? Well, the dress, the it's actually a suit, and it's made out of um, really fine wool crepe with silk, with some silk insets and some um, silk and metallic thread embroidery, sort of tucked in between the folds of the sleeves. There's like a feather embroidered which shows up a couple, you get a little glimpse of it in the film, but if you don't know it's there, you can miss it. But it just kind of gave a little bit of a kick to it from in certain low light. So um, that was kind of the idea. I wanted her suit to be able to be structured, but still be soft so it could kind of flutter when she moved and stuff, sort of like to give the kind of wink to the ability to fly. Right. So it was quite simple, but but the whole bird element was an important part of her, her 
costume, the shoulders were inspired like by how birds' wings kind of point up on their bodies. And I mean, she had to wear it a long time. So I wanted it to be something that had a really strong silhouette. Um, can I talk to you a little bit about Fantastic Beasts as well, which is uh, you've had some huge success with this year. Um, anything related to the Harry Potter is just canon. And um, did you start looking at the books? Because this movie is really a 70-year prequel to the Harry Potter books. How, how did you approach this? You know, I didn't approach it that way. I approached it as a new thing separate from the books. Oh, cool. Um, I grew up with the books because my daughter loved them and we went to see all the movies, my second daughter that is. Mm -hmm. We went to see all the movies together and enjoyed the Harry Potter journey a lot. So I knew the movies and I knew the, the books from that standpoint, but I didn't know like the genealogy of the whole thing. And it was quite freeing. I was surrounded by people that did because I had a lot of people on my team who'd, who'd done the whole series and who, who knew what the whole genealogy was. But it was quite interesting to approach these people because they aren't in the other books. They're new people. You don't know who they are. Right. As, you know, from a totally outside point of view, which was, I think, you know, it was freeing for me and it was not without thought of the early things, but it was not kind of where I was coming from. Oh, interesting. So so you tried to sort of separate yourself from that and think more about the when it was set and how. Yeah, I was thinking the world of New York at that time in the script that I was working on, not the last like five or however many there were Harry Potter movies. I was not thinking about them. I was thinking about the one I was working on that was a new creation, a new world and all new characters. Right, right. So I wasn't like wondering what Harry, you know, Eddie's Harry's distant uncle. Like I didn't, you know, I got it, but it wasn't like where I was coming from. Nor I, do I think it was what any the movie anybody was making. And what is your next project? The one I'm working on right now is um, Dumbo that Tim Burton's directing. It's his next picture, mm. and it's um, based on the animated cartoon from the oh, really? 30s or oh, cool. Yeah, but it's not animated. No, of course not. <laughs> um, so you're a pro at the Oscars already. Will you design your own dress when you go? If you go this year, I have no idea. <laughs> I don't know if I'll. I'm busy. I don't know if I'll have time to to do that. You know, it's it's. Uh, I have. I haven't really gone. I'd, I'd rather wait to find out if I'm actually going before I start thinking about that <laughs> of course <laughs> but this was so interesting thank you very much and thank you for your amazing work all through the years and good luck thank you very much thank you very much to Colleen Atwood and good luck at the Oscars and to our Swedish listeners hope you have caught our Miss Peregrine DVD competition running now on Twitter and popcultureconfidential.com and if you enjoy our show, please take a minute to like the show, rate us on iTunes, send a comment on SoundCloud. Let us know what you think. We love hearing from you. This show was edited by Tom Hansen, music by Carl Borg, and produced by René Wittestedt and myself. I'm Christina jörling Biro. Thank you so much for listening.
Well, hey, podcast listener. My name is Vince, and I'm the host of a show called The RR Show. It stands for Reddit Readings. We're going to sit down twice a week, and I'm going to bring you the most entertaining stories from all of the best subreddits that exist online. Things like malicious compliance, petty revenge, hey, lady, I don't work here. Oh, there's so much more. Lots of great stories and things you won't believe. Like the one time uh, this dude was caught in a bathroom with his friend, and he was slapping them because that was the only way that he could actually legitimately help them. A mall cop comes in with a taser. Oh, yeah, the rest is history. It's going to be fun. There is, uh, well, I don't know, I got like 20 seconds left, so I don't got much more time to tell you another story. But just join me on The RR Show. It's from Evergreen Podcast, produced in partnership with Wessler Media. So The RR Show. Wherever you get podcasts, subscribe today. And uh, it's like an adult story time. Let's hang out together. The RR Show. Subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts.